Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Over the Cap podcast. It's May 21st, 2023, and this is Jason Fitzgerald. You can find me on Twitter at Jason underscore OTC, uh, or you can email me, Jason at overthecap.com. This is a rare Sunday afternoon podcast. Usually we try to get these in uh, either Friday or Saturday night or occasionally during the week at night. Uh, planned on doing this last night. Um, that, that was the, the plan. Uh, at the last minute, we ended up going out to eat. By the time we got back, I kind of didn't feel like doing it. Decided to watch a little bit of basketball, so uh, we'll try this on Sunday instead. Uh, as usual, I'm joined by Nelly the Bunny, at least for the time being. Uh, Jacob took a little bit of a nap right now, so uh, I think he was tired out from playing outside or something. So if he wakes up and decides it's Fortnite time, you may have to pause this and get booted out from here. Um, but at least for now, uh, we're in the usual recording spot with Nelly. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, also rare event, we're doing the Sunday beer today. So we got the Southern Tier IPA. Um, this is a mainstay of just some typical IPA stuff that I do here. So uh, most of you are probably used to hearing me talk about this. So not too much to do about it. But we'll have uh, one or two of these during the course of the podcast today. So there, there's two kind of topics I was going to go over today. So one is undrafted free agents, and the other one is we'll talk a little bit about Joe Burrow. But I think I'm going to start with the UDFAs just because that's something that's a little bit more current. Um, this is something where we have most of the numbers now in for the undrafted class from this past year. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to kind of run some numbers. I, ma I made a comment on Twitter about it. And I'll do this as a post as well. I don't know when, but it'll be sometime this week because uh, it's one of those things where I'd, I don't expect there to be that much interest really in it. But I did make a comment off the cuff that, you know, it, it almost seems like it is better nowadays um, to be an undrafted free agent rather than a late pick. And I, I kind of wanted to put that to the test. And I, I think I'm a little bit wrong on that. But the, the reason that I was kind of bringing that up was because we're seeing these changes that occur in guaranteed salaries. Um, really, it, it's it's come up because of this current CBA. So when the CBA jumped in 2020, when the new CBA, I'm sorry, jump is the wrong word. Uh, when the new CBA came in in 2020, there were a couple of changes that are somewhat minor, but they had a big impact, I think, on the draft. And the changes that are there is that the practice squad salaries got increased um, pretty significantly, I, I think, over what had been there before. I think it was a pretty reasonable increase. And the other thing is the practice squad sizes got increased, especially because of COVID. And, you know, I, I don't think that's something that is probably going to change um, anytime soon. I think most of the size things, I think, have become permanent. I, I don't think they've reduced anything with that. Those were supposed to get phased in, I think, a little bit later in the CBA, but I think they basically just phased them in right away. But one of the things that we track on the site, and this is Nick that does this more than I do, uh, that, that's basically the concept of being the premier undrafted free agent. By premier undrafted free agent, it means that your guarantee levels are higher. And if you go and you look at this, this is something that's grown. So I went back and I looked at our data from 2020, and in 2020, we had data for, let's see, I think it's about 470 UDFAs that were signed, 430 UDFAs that were signed right after, um, you know, the draft, or right in that period, you know, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. I think I looked at a four-week period after the draft. 
and consider that the the true rookie pool because you do get undrafted who are signed uh, in January and February. A lot of times those are CFL players. Um, you know that they might get a bonus as well uh, or some type of guarantee. The summertime you might see some guys in the XFL. Uh, there were less players signed the following year in 2021, but uh, you know you, you looked at those players who were signed in 2021, and that that was kind of COVID related that those numbers were down. But if you look at 2020, our breakdown of our salary guarantees that were given to the undrafteds, we only had four players of that class that um, you know were were able to get a guarantee of at least $150,000. So that's only 0.9%. We had 6% get between 100 and 150,000, 5% between uh 75 and 100,000, 9.3% were between 50 and 75, 25%, I'm sorry, 13% were between 25,000 and 50,000, and the majority of our players get a lot less than that. Uh, 10,000 to 25 is 21, 20% was uh, between 5,000 and 10,000, so that, that that's a much smaller um, you know, group of players. Uh, the following year, we saw our first guarantee that was going to be at least $200,000. Now, again, this was a much smaller pool. This was only 272 um, players that we had a record for right there. But let's just do those percentages there. So, you know, that, that was still, um, you know, still a little bit on the lower side, but you could see that it was creeping up. So, 3.7% of our players now had a guarantee of at least $150,000. The year before, that was just 0.9%. Uh, we had 11% who had between $100,000 and $150,000. You know, the prior year, that was just 6% of the draft class. Um, you know, And we weren't above the 20 percentile range for those real low guarantees. We were more in you know, 15%, 18% of that group. Then you get into 2022 and there really is a big change I think in 2022. So in 2022, now our, our movement has gone from 0% with a $200,000 salary guarantee to just 0.4%. In 2022, that jumps to 3.1% of all undrafted free agents. And this was a bigger pool. We had 490 players. So we were back to the norm um, for the players that were signed. Our group that is at least $150,000 is now up to 5.6%. That's up from 3.7 in 2021 and 0 0.9 in 2020. 8.4% uh, is between 100,000 and 150. And those real low ranges um, that we talked about are, you know, basically about 14% of the class, give or take a little bit. Um, this year, now we don't have everybody in. There's still a couple of teams that. I'm missing out on a little bit, uh, par partials on those teams. Um, so th these numbers might fluctuate a little bit. But our $200,000 guarantee is now up to 5.5% of the class. Okay, so we've gone from nothing to 0 0.4 to 3.1 to 5.5. Our 150000 plus, so this includes those making over 200000 in the guarantee, is now 9.3%. So we've gone from 0.9 to 3.7 to 5.5 to 9.3. Uh, our guarantees between 100,000 and 150,000 is still about 9.3%. Uh, 
Um, you know, that, that number is staying kind of steady over the last couple of years. Um, 75 to 100,000 has dipped, you know, down to 3.8, but that's because we're seeing more bump ups. 5.7 between 50 and um, 75. And, you know, the lower range is 10.4, 13, 3, 15. You know, that, that's not that big of a deal. But when we start to slot those guarantees in there, the guarantees that we're seeing for, if we consider round eight to be the top 32 players, um, you know, by guarantee, you know, we're looking at a, a pretty significant number here. So we're looking at a guarantee. Let me just sort these real quick. Largest to smallest. Let me pull these in here. Might be a couple duplicates, but that's all right. Um, so our top 32 are averaging a guarantee. Whoops. I just put that in there wrong, but let's quickly fix that. Of about $220,000 is the average guarantee. Um, that's significantly more than what you're going to see in these guarantees kind of later on in the draft. Um, let me pull up those numbers as well. Let's see. So our average signing bonus for a sixth round pick um, is about 180000 That doesn't include compensatory. The compensatories are 133 Uh The average signing bonus, so that, that's back of the round, is about 133 That's midpoint between sixth, seventh round. Uh, a seventh round draft pick gets a guarantee of $96,318. That's your average guarantee, include, not including those compensatory players. So, you know, what you can see is when we, we talk about our undrafted players, we're talking about a much higher level of guarantee, right? We just said that uh, our top 32 was $220,000. Uh, players 33 through 34, so if we call that uh, round nine, we would be at, um, you know, 139,000, which is basically the equivalent, I think, of that uh, seventh rounder, right? What did, what did I say that number was, 133? I'm sorry, no, they were 97. So you, you would still be above that guarantee level. Um, you know, basically the, the seventh rounder would probably be the, probably be the equivalent of, I guess, what would be considered the 10th rounder. Um, if we rank our undrafted players by guarantees, um, let me see if I can calculate those real quickly. Uh, let's take a look here. That'd be number 65 through 96. I should have just set this up to do these automatically, but didn't bother. So we're at 103.75. So basically that's when you match the level of guarantee that you would get in the, um, in the draft. So you can make a case that being undrafted actually carries certain benefits to it that don't exist with the draft. You're getting a better guarantee than a sixth round pick, better guarantee than a seventh round pick, depending on where you go in the UDFA process. You're kind of choosing your team. So obviously any team that drafts you, you know, wanted you, but you, you're getting to also choose your best fit. So you, 
you're negotiating with multiple teams and you're kind of choosing your best fit because ultimately what you want to do is make the team. If you make the team and you play for the whole year, you make $750,000 plus whatever you got as a signing bonus. So obviously your you know, best course for earnings is to make the football team. Um, you know, so you kind of get to pick and choose in that regard. Whereas, you know, you're at the mercy of what specifically the team thinks when they're the ones who draft you. And sometimes you end up not being a fit for their scheme and, you know, they just think that you can be a fit for it. You might know that you're not, um, you know, and you might opt to not go to that type of team. So if you're a risk adverse kind of person, I, I would, I can kind of see the benefit of being an undrafted player. But I think I went too far when I said that there's more of a benefit and that maybe you should just look to hold out from the draft. Now, the one thing that I did preface that comment with was there are some long-term benefits to being a draft pick that don't that don't exist with being undrafted. And the basics on that is it can never get taken away from you, even if you're a seventh-round pick, the fact that you're a draft pick. And when you start looking at... Um, implications of where you're drafted, how your NFL career began. There's a stigma that comes with each round. Um, and I know a lot of times we say that the stigma is bad, but, you know, if you can use other words to describe it, but, you know, if you're a first round pick, being a first round pick carries a lot of weight. Like you could be worse than an undrafted player you're going to get a ton more opportunities than any player who went undrafted. And I'm talking about even on a second contract. I'm not talking about just the first contract alone. I'm talking about five years from now, four years from now, when you flamed out, busted out with your original team, you'll still find some kind of guarantee going to another team because they still think they can unlock this potential that exists. Um, with each round, the impact you know, reduces. Second round, third round, then there's... There's a big drop, I think, between third and fourth, um, fifth, and then there is a drop between sixth and seventh. There, there's a lot more um, value that comes with being a sixth-round pick, I think, than a seventh-round pick. But still, being a sixth-round pick is beneficial. Being a seventh-round pick is beneficial. Being undrafted is the biggest hill that you have to climb. All things being equal, let's say we have a sixth-round pick, seventh-round pick, and a undrafted player, all at the same position, all relatively similar statistics. Let's say they're in the same kind of team situation, a team that, you know, is a decent team, you know, nine, 10, 10 win team, you know, playoff contender um, year in, year out. You'll probably find that the, the drafted player uh, ends up getting a better contract than the undrafted player, even though the undrafted player can sign earlier. Um you know, he, he gets that. And they did eliminate one of the benefits that existed in the old CBA. And that benefit that was there, um, which, you know, was a good thing if you were undrafted versus drafted, is the uh, proven performance escalator. You, you didn't have the ability to really raise that up. So if you were undrafted, you could get in that fourth year of a deal like a $4 million salary. Um, you know, if they threw a second round tender on you, now that's kind of balanced out. There's ways that you can earn those higher tender levels, um, e even if you're a draft pick. So that that part of the advantage of being a UDFA is gone, though it's probably a little bit easier to earn that higher number uh, if you're one of the select few who happens to get it. Most players don't. Um, you know, even in the draft pool, most players don't get that. 
but you know that that draft status carries a lot and so what i wanted to do is to go a step further and let's go back to these classes and let's start to see from these groups of players um you know what type of earnings they really had in the first year that they were in the nfl you know because that's what our guarantee is our guarantee between a draft pick and an undrafted is a very different type of guarantee and that sometimes gets lost in translation i think and i'm just as guilty of it as anyone else our guarantee that we're talking about for a seventh round or the $100,000 guarantee, $96,000 or whatever that number is, that comes in the form of a signing bonus. That money is the players to keep whether the player is cut um, or not. That That is money on top of his contract. The majority of the guarantee that's earned by an undrafted player comes in the form of a paragraph five guarantee or a base salary guarantee that guarantee is subject to offset. So one of the reasons we've seen these guarantees jump up is they kind of raise to the level of a practice squad salary. The thought behind it is there's so many practice squad spots. If this guy is good enough to probably have been picked in the sixth or seventh round, just things didn't shake that way with the board this year, he's probably good enough to land with a couple of teams during the course of the year uh, or our own team on a practice squad and whatever money he's paid in that guarantee is going to be offset by what he earns on a practice squad. Yeah, we're a couple of weeks on an active roster. So in the majority of cases where we have these big guarantees, and I didn't run the signing bonus numbers, but they're small. Um, you know, in the majority of cases, your top earnings um you know this year would probably be around maybe seven hundred and eighty thousand dollars if you made the team as an undrafted free agent for the entire year um yeah so no our, our top bonus this year was forty thousand dollars so you would be able to earn up to um seven hundred and ninety thousand dollars this year uh then we had a third one two three four Looks like 10 players at $30,000 and then a bunch at twenty five. So that's your, your upwards number. Your upwards number for that sixth round pick who has a guarantee of $180,000. You know, we're talking about a player who's going to earn close to $950,000 if he makes the team. So there's a lot more earning potential that exists because of the difference in guarantee structure um, you know, for those drafted players versus the undrafted players. Going back to looking to see how these players did, uh, there's a clear benefit to being drafted over undrafted. Even if we start to rank players by their um, undrafted status, meaning their, you know, their, their guarantee number uh, that they make. So if we go back to the draft, let me just pull up the draft numbers here so if we look at our drafted players the average salary that was earned by a let's see i'll start with 2020 a seventh round pick in 2020 was five hundred thirty-eight thousand dollars. 
Uh, the sixth round pick, their average first year salary that was earned was six hundred ninety-one thousand dollars. Fifth round pick is much higher, eight seventy-one. Uh, in twenty twenty-one, six hundred two for a seventh, uh, six ninety-nine for a sixth, eight seventy-two uh, for a fifth. So that's pretty consistent. Seventh rounder was a little bit higher um, than the prior year. It probably just has to do with the salaries being a little bit higher if they made the team, maybe a little bit better group um, that year. There was probably less competition again because there was less kind of um, action coming out of the COVID college year, I think the year before. Uh, 2022, those numbers were 672 for a seventh, 730 for a sixth, 942 for a fifth. So these are, these are players who were earning, um, you know, a pretty high number. Are the players who are premier undrafted free agents earning anywhere near these numbers? And the answer is not really. Um, if we go back and we, we take a look at this, our average earnings for the um, 100,000 plus group, for example, um, was probably about you know, $340,000, $350,000. Um, you know, I, I broke these up into little groups. The players who had a guarantee of over 150000 again, it was only four players that year, they earned 465000 Players between one hundred and one hundred and fifty earned on average 320000 75 to 100000 guarantee earned 350000 Now, that doesn't mean there's not a benefit to getting these higher guarantee levels among the undrafted groups. Uh, the numbers, you know, are significantly higher. So for this, this group, the earnings... Um, you know, so the, the breakdowns that I have here, uh, the 75 to 100, 50 to 75, 25 to 50, 10,000 to 25, 5,000 to 10,000, $100 bonus to a $5,000 bonus and no bonus at all. Uh, the no bonus at all group made on average about $50,000 that year. That jumps to 70,000, then 118, 173, 214, 240. So just like with your draft status, that guarantee status does tell you something about where you rank in the hierarchy and you, your opportunities that you're going to have. But again, it's not the same opportunities that are coming up despite that large guarantee as those players in the draft. Um, you know, the following year, the numbers were about 430,000 for players over 150, 350,000 for players between 100 and 150, 25,000, 220, 201, 150, 175. And then the players who had no bonus that year were 126 um, in first year earnings. And again, I'm going to chalk that up to, you know, some expansion stuff with those practice squads, but um, maybe still a little bit uh, that had to do with, um, you know, just the, the lack of knowledge from the scouting process coming through college. Uh, last year, our average earnings were for the top players, um, three hundred and seventeen thousand if you had over a two hundred thousand dollar guarantee, three hundred eighty-three thousand if you were between one fifty and two hundred. So, you know, basically about three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Uh, three forty for players between one hundred and one fifty, two forty, two sixty, two fifty, two hundred three, and then when we get down to the real low bonus levels, one twenty nine, a hundred, uh, you know, and a hundred. That, that's where the numbers shook out for the players who had those real limited bonus levels. But what you're seeing is a lot of these players, even if you're undrafted, they're landing on practice squads. You, you do have a lot of players who are doing that. So 
you know, th there's a benefit to it, but you're certainly not, um, you're not matching the earnings in the first year of a draft pick. You're still more likely to get cut. That guarantee if you're cut is less meaningful because, you know, in large part, you know, that salary is going to be offset if you can get a job basically trying out practicing for the NFL. Whereas when you are the sixth round pick, you got to keep your $150,000, $160,000 guarantee and you're earning on top of that whatever salary you're getting um, from being on a practice squad. And there is also, uh, I think when we talk about, and at Sumer, they had, they had a good little topic on this uh, two weeks ago, I think it was, where they, they were kind of mentioning about retention rates. Uh, Thomas Dimitrov was mentioning it. And it, it, it is absolutely true. We do some some consulting stuff on the side where we look into these things. One of, one of these big metrics that, you know, you, you kind of see GMs graded by, I think, internally uh, and maybe a little bit externally as well, your retention rate. You, know, you you don't want to have situations where you drafted a player and he's cut the first year. You don't want to have situations where you drafted a player and he's playing for another team. You want those players to be on your team. Nobody looks into that for undrafted. We, we kind of do uh, where we talk about homegrown players, homegrown talent, what's the level of homegrown. But the bigger thing is what type of success are you having in the draft versus you know what, what guys that are undrafted are kind of filling out your roster. So there is probably more of a reason for that sixth and seventh round pick to stick around for at least a full year um, before you cut them. Now, one of the questions then that I had after looking at this was, well, are these teams seeing how many of these players are obviously being cut? Um, you know, are they blowing it with these guarantees? Are the guarantee levels too high? And I think that's a, that's a question that we do have to look at for the future. But in large part, the answer is no. So I'm, I'm going to cut out those players with the super high guarantees in the last couple of years, meaning the $200,000 players. But of players that had a guarantee of between $150,000 and $200,000, four players were signed in 2020 that had that, all four earned more than $150,000. So that means that guarantee was completely offset. It was meaningless. Nine players in 2021, all nine earned in excess of $150,000. So they earned at least $151,000. Um, that was offset. Of the 12 players last year, 92%, so 11 of the 12, earned over that guarantee. Um, between 100 and 150,000 last year, 93% earned over that. 87% the prior year, 85% the year before that. Between 75 and 100,000, 91% uh, of the players earned more than that in 2020. 82% earned more than that in 2021. 71% earned more than that in 2022. So again, you are getting protection here if you're one of those 30%. You know, if you're one of those 30%, you made out a little bit better, obviously, because you had this guarantee. But the team side on this, when we're looking at these numbers and we're seeing that they're out-earning the guarantee, 
it's not that much of a risk when you consider there obviously is a reward if you get one of these undrafted players who turns into a pretty, you know, good quality player. Uh, between 50 and 75,000, uh, we have an 88, 85, and 70% hit rate. Uh, 25 to 50,000, 80%, 70%, 70%. Uh, between 10 and 25,000 on the guarantee, 73%, 65, 55. So, you know, we're talking about that. And when I give these guarantee levels, I mean that they're they're earning an excess on the P5, um, you know, the offset portion, um, you know, that's in there. Uh, when we get into those lower levels, you know, th this is where you get into, you know, lower expectations. So if you have a sign, uh, a guarantee between five and $10,000, a lot of times that's just a signing bonus, 48%, 43%, 51%. So that means most of your guys, or ha only half of your guys are actually showing up for like a week on a practice squad because all you need is a week on a practice squad and you're going to earn over five grand. Um, so that means in that group, it's like a 50-50 percentage that are making a practice squad. Uh, if you had a bonus between $105,000, um, $100 and $5,000, not $105,000, uh, $34,000, $37,000, and you know, the players who don't get anything at all, 40% uh, earn more than zero, 57% in that COVID-y wacky year, and then 46% last year. So you know, th those players are having a harder time making it, but they, they are making it. And as, as we looked at some of those numbers... It seems like of half of the players who make it, you could probably bank on if you're one of those half, you're probably going to make a practice squad and you're going to get a couple of weeks on a roster. It's just that the other players don't make it at all. Um, but the reason that I brought up the $200,000 number as this is maybe something we have to see because this requires a full year on the practice squad or a couple of years on the... Um, a couple of weeks, sorry, on the active roster to have that offset. Last year, which was the first year where we really had a lot of players get that type of guarantee, only 47% earned in excess of the guarantee. So about half of the teams ended up on the short end of the stick. It didn't cover the offset on the P5 um, that's there. Now, I, I don't have the threshold number as to what that was. I, I didn't dig that far into it. But I think this is the thing to keep an eye on. And since this number really ramps up in 2023, where we've got even more undrafteds earning this amount of money, I think this is something to keep an eye on. Because when we look at these other numbers, and we're talking about 90 percentile, 70 percentile, 80 percent, those are reasonable guarantees um, you know, for the payoff. Obviously, it's almost like a no harm, no foul. It's like you're signing the player. The only thing you're really outlaying is whatever the signing bonus is. And we've talked about that. That's a small number. And, you know, you're you're offsetting that guarantee. You know, you've got a 70% chance of offsetting the guarantee, a 90% chance of offsetting the guarantee. It's almost risk-free. But if we're going to get to the point where we're at 50% on a $200,000 guarantee, well, what are we doing? You know, so I think that's, that's kind of the thing that we want to look at. Um, when we start kind of getting into these into these teams in the future and um, how we look at them. Um, real quick, just for this year, if you're just curious, who are the teams that valued uh, undrafted players the most? 
And this is just the total guarantees that were doled out. Dallas was by far number one, 1. 1.5 million. They had a lot of players they gave a $150,000 guarantee to. Um, the Vikings were at $1.167 million in guarantees. The Chiefs, $1.122 million. The Saints, $1.06 million. The Jets, $1.04. The Browns, $1.04. I think one of the things that you'll see most of these teams kind of have in common is they are tighter on the salary cap. Um, you know, so they, they kind of have more of a need to maybe over-guarantee some of these contracts to get bodies in there that can compete for lower-level positions on the team where they're going to be, you know, they're going to cost less um, as they navigate through some of their salary cap situations. The Buccaneers were number seven with 984000 That's a different story. That's a team that not only is in salary cap hell, uh, they don't have the ability to bring in players. So this is exactly what happened to Atlanta a couple of years ago. You went from a team that probably was not big on undrafted. Atlanta definitely was not at all. Uh, I don't remember if the Buccaneers were or weren't. Um, but they had a huge draft class, undrafted class this year simply because they don't have the ability to put a bunch of like lower-level veterans on their team. They need some of these guys to make it. In my mind, that's a pretty good spot to be You know, if you're trying to make a team. Uh, Broncos were number eight at 963, Texans 932,000, Eagles 918 were number 10. I thought they would have topped that out. Uh, your bottom 10 teams, Patriots 240. I'm not sure if I have all those players. Ravens 216, Falcons 207. That, that's been for many regimes now. Seahawks 153. Seahawks only do the signing bonus guarantees. They don't really do anything else. Same goes with the Bengals at 120. Uh, Rams 117.5, Bears just 107,000, the Bills just 104,000 uh, dollars. Then you had the Packers at 80,500 in total guarantees, and last and certainly least here is the Steelers just 78,000 dollars in guarantees. They're also not going to do the P5 guarantees for anyone. It's just signing bonuses and. These are teams that are kind of prescribing to the old school where it's just a very, very moderate signing bonus because they don't see a lot of potential sometimes um, in the players who are undrafted to really stand out. That, that's been something, I think, with the Steelers. Uh, you know, I, I think they would rather jump on guys that have kind of freaky athletic scores that slip in the draft. And sometimes you don't see some of those players in the undrafted pool. So they, they don't go too crazy with it. Um, I think that's been something year over year. But yeah, so that that's just a, a look at the UDFA stuff. I will get this together in a post because I think more people actually pay attention in post. It's probably easier to follow along with a couple of the numbers. But uh, yeah, I think I was a little bit ahead of myself when I talked about the benefits of being undrafted. I, I think more the way to look at it is if you're not picked in that sixth or seventh round, if you really thought you were going to be a late draft pick, um, don't fret it. You know, don't don't get too worried about it. If you're one of these players that gets a premier level guarantee, it probably means you're in a pretty good position um, the following year to make a pretty good living, you know, for one year, you know, $400,000 in earnings, $350,000 in earnings. That's not terrible, um, you know, by any stretch, you know, that that's certainly not. So you have an opportunity. Now, if you thought you were going to get drafted and you're one of these guys that ends up with a $10,000, you know, signing bonus, $10,000 guarantee, you got some work to do. And, you know, if you're representing one of these players, I think that just gives you more reason when you have to work with those guys, just really explaining to them. And I know some people probably don't want to do that, but explaining to them the reality of it, you know, how hard 
how how much of an uphill battle it's going to be, um, you know, to really do something significant. And if they've really been working incredibly hard just in this pre-draft process, they probably have to work even harder uh, going into the season, you know, before training camp. Now the rookie camps are basically done, you know, to, to really try to get themselves just in tip-top shape and ready to show that they're better than some of these sixth or seventh round picks from, if not this year, last year, or the year before that, where now they're kind of, those players are kind of falling out of favor and you have a chance to replace them because you make less money. Um, you know, better than the other undrafteds on your team. You know, th- this is your opportunity to do that. So you, you have to understand from that level of guarantee, I think, how much more is going to be on you, um, you know, to, to be able to do that. All right, let, let's talk a little bit about Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals, and then we'll do a little bit of Twitter Q&A. don't think I have too many questions there. Um, there was a thing this week that kind of came out that Joe Burrow is in contract discussions of some sort with Cincinnati, Things will get done. And, you know, the typical thing, oh, I want to do what's best for the team and myself and, um, you know, for, for the players on the team. And I don't know, all, all these things in my mind just get blown out of proportion. Um, there's different ways you can look at it, okay? If you want to be in the Patrick Mahomes boat and you want to say that Patrick Mahomes took the deal that he took for legacy purposes, meaning that he thought by locking himself in at 45 a year um, for 12 years, you know, a 10-year extension and whatever it was, that that would give the Chiefs the most ability long-term, um, you know, to put together a winner to where, you know, the money the money is so big at the position, um, you know, that you're, you're set for life just based on the contract, right, alone, even if it's not the, uh, what I would say, well, that's not the best contract. In fact, I'd say that's one of the more team-friendly ones. Mahomes is set for life with that kind of deal that he got, regardless of what the guarantees were at signing, regardless of anything, he's set. And yes, he's playing for a Hall of Fame career that's defined, um, your level of greatness ends up being defined basically by how much you're able to win at that point. All right. Um, You know, if you want to do that, that's fine. Um, But, you know, I, I go back to the Mahomes example, and I just think this is a good one. No matter how much you say, you know, this is it, this is for my teammates, this is opening things up for my teammates, the team is always going to make decisions that are independent of that when it comes to what they do with other players on the team. What they do with other players on the team, the only dependency that there is at all on it is if the if the salary cap numbers from the quarterback become like just a just a real disaster all right yeah you, you're you're really boxed in at that point and you're probably going to lose people uh because of that but for the most part whatever you're creating by taking a quote-unquote team-friendly deal in the grand scheme of things isn't large enough to be like oh well now they're going to keep everybody here the teams are going to make decisions based on their own uh, budgets that they have um, that's set by ownership. And they're going to make decisions based on what they think the productivity level is going to be for the player. 
And the majority of times, this is some studies I hope they do over the summer, um, you know, just to do a little bit more in depth, because I talk about it a lot. And for some positions, you kind of know it, but maybe things have changed since the last time I've really looked at these things. You know, the peak of a player's career is generally year four, five, six, and then it's declining returns. Might even be declining returns in year six. And your extensions often kick in year five, year six. Um, you know, you, you look at the Chiefs and, you know, you look at Tyreek Hill, who is still playing at a very high level, still is playing at a very high level um, now with Miami. You know, they, they basically had a dispute from the sounds of it of about $4 million a year. You could easily, easily, easily make the case, well, you know, Mahomes is way under $4 million under market. You know, market is now $50 million a year. That alone should be the money to keep Tyreek Hill. No, because it wasn't in the best interest of the Chiefs. You know, to, to have a $25 million receiver when you've got this quarterback who can make things happen with lesser players and you can replace that, that player with two different ones, three different ones. Um, you know, if you, you take into account, you know, Signing Valdez Scantling, signing Smith Schuster, making a trade for Darius Tony, um, you know that that's kind of more how they're going to value whether or not they keep a team intact, keep a player. You know, you you look at you know what happened with their safety. Just because Mahomes took a better deal, didn't mean that they went out of their way to give him a crazy contract like the Vikings gave Harrison Smith. No, they let him leave in free agency. You know, their tackle, they went and signed another tackle that was more on the terms that was going to meet their budget, meaning, you know, yeah, it's $20 million a year, but it's a flat $20 million a year versus what he signed for in Cincinnati, which was, you know, a huge amount of money up front and, you know, lesser money on the back end. That wasn't going to work with Kansas City's budget. You know, Kansas City is one of the lower spending teams in the league. So... Regardless of what Mahomes did, it had almost no bearing on any of these other decisions. And the same would happen with Joe Burrow. You know, whether I, if I want to say, well, Joe Burrow should get a contract that's $55 million a year. You say, well, no, for the benefit of the team, he, he can't be more than 50. Okay, do you really think that's going to make a difference? You know, I say this many times, if you're really concerned about the team, the guys that you play with, all right, not the team itself, right? They're, they're making money hand over fist. Um, if you're concerned about the guys you play with, you should be playing to be on a franchise tag. Because if you're on a franchise tag, well, that gives the team, uh, that doesn't give the team the ability to franchise and block um, all these other players from free agency. Like, how is Jamar Chase going to make more money as a free agent or locked in on a franchise tag? You know, the, the answer on that is very simple. Um, so if you're the quarterback and you really are looking out for the best interests of your team, uh, teammates, that's what you would do. Now, I don't expect the guys to, to really be into that or understand it. You know, I, I think for them, it's just going to come at the highest you know, you know, the most, uh, the most basic level where people get into contracts and salary cap stuff, which, you know, is your very baseline reporting that you get from an ESPN or something, which is the biggest outlet that's there. And, you know, they're, they're basically going to put things out there that 
are just those generalizations that have been there for years. He's doing what's in the best interest of the team. And I can guarantee you, if he he signs a contract that is $53 million a year, right? The next little step up from Lamar Jackson. Rappaport uh, at NFL.com. Um, maybe Pelissero at the same place. Schefter. Um, they're all going to put out tweets within two, three minutes of one another, calling it a win-win situation for both sides where Burrow really wanted to help the team and Cincinnati wanted to make sure that Joe Burrow was a happy Bengal for life. They will all say the same nonsense. And that's been said over and over and over and over to the point where it becomes fact when you just look at the history of these teams and it's not. By the same token, there's no point in overanalyzing these situations either. And I'm sure we'll do it when the numbers come in and say, oh, this is what it means for the market. This is what it means for Justin Herbert. This is what it means for this player going forward and everything else. Um, you know, realistically, it really means nothing. When you're a player who's that level of player, uh, and we're talking about a guy who, you know, is a top pick in the draft. He's a very good player borderline great player. If you want to call him a great player, call him a great player. He's had success. This to me is not Carson Wentz. This is not Jared Goff where you're looking more at team success. He has a very good team around him. It's not like he doesn't. He has good players around him. It's not like he doesn't. Um, but I don't envision this as a situation that would be like those where they get the contract and it's kind of like, ah, you know, that's a little iffy given the body of work. And the guarantee structure that's in there probably does give them some protection. But even with Wentz, who is just a disaster, you had two teams trade for that contract regardless of the guarantee. They traded for that contract as is, regardless of the fact that those salaries were guaranteed. They didn't care. So the, the reason I say that is those kind of things are kind of meaningless when you're a player at this level, because the odds of getting released on these deals is very, very, very slim. Somebody will pick you up. Maybe in Goff's case, maybe the guarantee helped him out a little bit there. You know, I, I don't think the Lions would have traded for that contract um, or gotten back what they got from that contract if uh, that salary was not guaranteed. Um, may, maybe that would be one of those rare instances, but you know, for many of these other players, you know, it really doesn't make a difference because they make it towards the end of those contracts anyway. So I, I don't think that aspect of it is going to be that big of a deal, even though people are going to bring it up. Um, you know, the, the other thing is he's in Cincinnati. Cincinnati doesn't cut ties with players. They don't. Cincinnati has a notorious reputation for being cheap. And sometimes cheap is not the right way to describe them. They've gone out and they've spent. They've been better. Um, you know, in the last couple of years, they've gone into free agency. We see them sign some players. Um, you know, we, we've seen them be active. We've seen them do stuff. But at the same time, they have always been a team that has historically honored the contract in large part because Cincinnati's strategy in signing a player is to pay them a ton of money up front rather than guaranteeing stuff, pay them a ton of money in the first year, and then they just chase it as a sunk cost. 
Now, many of these players have been fine. Um, you know, recently, at least, they've done a much better job with who they've selected and who they've picked. So, you know, I, I, I don't know how much of that will change. But, you know, it does change the budget. But again, when we're talking about the numbers here, all right, if we're talking about well, what can they do in free agency, okay? When we're talking about the difference of Joe Burrow at $45 million a year versus Joe Burrow at $55 million a year, that's a player. You know, that, that might be significant, but that's what it is. It's one free agent or two lower or two mid-tier kind of $5 million players, you know, however you want to look at it. Um, that's that's what it that's what the salary decrease changes for the Bengals. Now, is there a change from Joe Burrow making eight or nine million dollars a year to forty-five million dollars a year? Of course there is. <laughs> right? We're we're talking about a difference now of like forty million dollars. That's four ten million dollar players. You know, that that's a lot of uh you know, decent players that you have on the team. You know, if we if we go to uh, let me look at the Bengals contracts. Let me look at the key metrics here. Uh, let's go to the Bengals. 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 So we've got Orlando Brown at sixteen a year, Trey Hendrickson at fifteen a year, DJ Reader at thirteen to five a year, um, Joe Mixon. That was a extension, so uh, let's not count that one. Tyler Boyd was an extension. B.J. Hill, that was a trade and sign. Did they trade for him? Um, yeah, they traded. They, they traded for him, but his contract expired. You could include him. So I mean, that's the difference of okay, where where we're going from Joe Burrow right now, which is nine million dollars a year. And we're going to take $40 million more a year out of our budget, um, you know, to put in there. That is Orlando Brown, Trey Hendrickson, and DJ Reader or BJ Hill or how, however you want to put that together. So, yeah, obviously that changes things. But the difference between 45 and 55 being in the best interest of the team, it doesn't move the needle really one bit. So, you know, I, I'm not going to get caught up much at all in the for the benefit of the team stuff, you know, unless there's some kind of assurance that they're magically going to open up the pocketbook for everybody else. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to care about that. You should care about yourself. Um, you know, you, sh you should do really what's in your best interest when it comes to uh, what you earn, because, you know. By and large, uh, that's really the thing that, that you know, is going to change things the most for the players in the NFL. And in many cases, for some of the guys on your own team, you know, if you're making whatever and that allows somebody to go to free agency or because you're making so much, it leverages the team to saying, well, we've got to keep these receivers because if Burrow needs all these guys... Like, it's going to look bad if we have him at $60 million a year and we don't have Jamar Chase, but we better pay Jamar Chase as well. So, you know, you're probably not helping your teammates 
by coming up with ways to make a, a substandard contract. But, you know, you don't have to go crazy with these guarantees. Um, you know, if you don't get the, uh, what's the total right now, 185, you know, throw out to Sean Watson. You know, you don't have to get 200 million in guarantees. You don't have to get $150 million at signing. Um, now, the way the Bengals do the deals, you probably do need to get an $80 million signing bonus or something, but whatever. Um, you know, it, again, it's not the end-all, be-all of it. Um, you know, I, I think what you would be looking for if you were an agent, um, you know, I, I think in Burroughs' case, you should be looking at 55 um, you know, I think that would be a pretty significant increase. You know, if we did a 55, that'd be a 5.8% increase. Um, I, I think that would be the low end of what people would be hoping for. Um, you know, with this deal, I think at the high end, you'd be looking at 57. So I think from an agent's perspective, you're probably hoping that somewhere between 55 and 57, if he's the next man up. Uh, rather than 53, which is literally just a next man up kind of contract. Um, you know, but he is going to set, I would think, some benchmarks in the front end of that deal that maybe would be beneficial to some other players as well. Uh, I don't think you're going to care about the guarantee. And again, the guarantee is just a, it's a posturing thing. It, it's to get a, a freaking tweet in an article that, you know, dominates the news cycle for a day or two. Um, you know, it's to get something that is put on pro football talk and gets a bunch of views for a day. Um, you know, that, that's really all it is, you know, because what, what scenario can you come up with that the Cincinnati Bengals are going to cut Joe Burrow in the next four years? Can you come up with one? No, you, you, you can't. Um, you know, the, 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 the only things, you know, when it comes to other positions, yeah, they, absolutely. When it comes to the quarterback position, no, it, it's just, it's shouldn't be as much of a concern you know um you know i get it it's, it's part of the the thing but just in um in terms of just the the overall um you know impact on your career and how much you're going to earn that guarantee really doesn't mean much at that position because the guarantee really does not match, you know, where we talked about the guarantee and the earnings level on those UDFAs, same concept. The quarterbacks, the veteran quarterbacks, for the most part, are out-earning the guarantee. So if they're out-earning the guarantee, well, that guarantee is basically meaningless from a team perspective. You know, that's why teams are very um, willing to give those injury guarantees to players but sometimes not the full and again this is more for other positions but what you do at quarterback impacts what you do everywhere else because if somebody at wide receiver is like well i want to get all my money guaranteed and you're like well you know lamar jackson just took 185 total injury but 50 million dollars less than that full right like if he was willing to take, uh, you know, 70% of his contract is full, 70% of the guarantee is full, another 30% injury, you got to be in the same boat. So, yeah, so there's there's that aspect of it. Um, but not that many players are really protected by that injury protection because most players don't get severe enough injuries um 
at a point in time where it locks in a salary that wouldn't be locked in anyway. So that that's why teams are more than willing to do injury protection, but not the full protection, because it, it is meaningful for the other positions. All right, let, let's go to our questions. So let's go to the emails. Um, okay, this is from Tarush, Tarush, if I'm pronouncing correctly. Uh, appreciate you taking time to engage with the community. Uh, big fan of the podcast. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy doing this. I got, I got to figure out one of these days how to get a, a decent time set up for this and do uh, like a YouTube live or something like that. Uh, you know, I did, I did the spaces a couple of times. Uh, and that was fun. Well, when I finally got those uh, the systems set up right and everything, but we could do YouTube or something like that and figure out how to do it. Uh, very least, we can all share a couple of drinks together. Um, <laughs> I'd asked about the inclusion of late-round draft picks and trades, and it still doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Is it really just for the optics? The recent Smith trade adds more to the confusion. Will the 2025 picks more or less just offset if the true value is essentially Smith for 2024 fifth? Why include those late-round picks in the first place? Just not just not seeing how that helps optics slash media coverage. Um as a second question here, but first let me look at that one. So Zadarius Smith, I, I think I think you had mentioned that the last one. I barely even knew Smith was traded, let alone the uh, terms of it. Um, so the official terms on this one is the Vikings trade a sixth rounder in 2025 and a seventh rounder in 2025. And the Ra- uh, Ravens, the Browns will give up a fifth in 2024 and a fifth in 2025. Um, you know, for the most part, that's just kind of how these deals, I think, shake out. Um, I don't even think there's really an optics thing of it. You know, that there's more value uh, being able to move up in the draft, even though we're talking years down the line um, with trades like this. So the first thing is just that you do have to include trade compensation to, um, you know, make these trades work. So in other words, if you did Smith for a 2024 fifth rounder, um, I think the league would probably be okay with that, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, that, no, they, they, they'd be okay with that. I think where the league might step in and I'm not sure if they would or wouldn't. Um, if you did Smith and a six for, um, a fifth. Um, you know, I, I don't know if they, there might be some questions to that, so maybe the stuff comes in that way. But I, I think for the most part, it's it's not so much... Um, some of it's a little bit of an optics thing, right? But I, I think the main thing is you're trying to come up with on whatever whatever point charts you use. And in this case, you do have two of the teams that are going to be more um, ahead of the curve with analytics, um, you know, so I would imagine that the Browns, uh, and the Vikings are both using very similar charts. The Eagles would be in a similar boat. Um, I would imagine they're valuing trades using their own internal models, as well as a couple different external models, which would be, um, stuff like, you know, Brad and I have done stuff that maybe PFF has worked on, um, you know, your Rich Hill style charts, which is tracking what trade value is currently at. Uh, I think they would do that. Um, you know, they'd be looking at that. Uh, I know there's guys on those teams that follow all these different sites and utilize um, all these, all the different things that are out there, um, you know, for stuff. So it would not surprise me 
if those are the kind of trade models that they're using. And I think for teams like this, you're trying to balance out, okay, what is the value, what's the dollar value that the Vikings are getting by getting rid of Smith? You know, what, what are what are they gaining? Um, I don't remember. What did he have guaranteed? Whoops. I just hit the wrong button. I'm going to say he had five of his salary guaranteed. Is Darius Smith? I don't have his uh, new extension term, not new contract terms in there. It sounds like he took a pay cut. Um, so he had about $5 million, $5.1 million guaranteed, you know, because he had a workout bonus in there that he was going to earn. Uh, maybe the workout was even guaranteed. I'm not sure. Um, no, that looks like it was just P5. So, you know, he had 5.1 guaranteed. They end up eating, I think, 1.2, give or take a little bit on it. Weird number. But how they came up with that number, I have no freaking clue. Uh, you know, unless they're using one of these models that uh, we have with some of those salary values and stuff like that, which might be the case. You know, that that 1.1 million that they pick up might offset some type of um, some type of cost associated with draft picks. Who knows? I don't know. Um, you know, or maybe it just hits whatever he was willing to play for uh, with the Browns. You know, I think it's going to end up coming out to be... Um, 10.5 million instead of 12.5 so maybe it just was just needed that to hit it um you know whatever it was but you know from their perspective they're saving um you know 3.8 million give or take a little bit uh you know that they they can use to sign their rookies you know to help them out with their salary cap situation which is not good um you know, and there, there's a there's a value to that, and obviously they feel as if they're giving the Browns a player who's worth around you know eight, nine, ten million dollars a year. Uh, you know, I, I think Minnesota was too aggressive with the contract they gave Smith off being released. That was a very big surprise, and when you see the return they got, not really worthwhile. Um, but you know, if you want to say that he was a key contributor to a playoff run, and you you want to look at that playoff run as a big success, then yeah, then it, then it's a success. But if we're looking at them doing this deal as a three-year deal with the hope of flipping him in a trade, which I think is the only reason you would do a three-year deal if you were Minnesota in the first place, it was a failure. Um, but, you know, you're valuing this as, okay, Minnesota is getting $3.8 million in salary cap relief, but you are getting the better player. So, you know, what, what is that worth? And, you know, you, you look at these these different draft picks and, um, you know, basically what you're doing is you're saying, okay, well, we're not going to lose our amount of draft picks. But for that $3.8 that we're taking off your hands, because that's what we're doing. You don't want them. And obviously you're not getting any offers for them if, uh, you know, this kind of trade package you're doing. You know, at this point, you're basically looking like, okay, well, what what is that value that's there? Um, and maybe they, they look at that value of him being like a um, you know five million dollar player or something like that. And I'm not I'm not going to run this through the trade calculator because it it is very um, you know these these are much lower picks, but you know it, it's a five for a six and a five for a seven. You know that that's that is that is a gain from Minnesota in some regard. Um, but at the same time, for Cleveland, it lets them keep their number of draft selections. And for Cleveland, that's important because they've basically slaughtered their drafts 
uh, because of the Deshaun Watson trade. So Cleveland's in a position where the volume of draft picks is incredibly important. So they need some of those picks, even if they're coming two, three years from now. They need those picks to continue to fill out a roster. So I, I think really that's probably the reason. I, I don't think this is one where um, the, the, the optics were the case. I think this was legitimately running through these scenarios and seeing what's a fair value um, you know, for taking a couple million dollars off of Minnesota's hands, but getting a player who's worth around 10, give or take a little, um, you know, to add to what you think is a playoff roster and finding a way to keep your volume of picks relatively intact over the next two years. Um, I, I think that was probably more the logic in this one. Uh, second part of the question, what's going on with the Trubisky extension, especially if re-signing Rudolph? My only thought is they're hedging with Pickett. I have no idea. I saw that tweet that was like, yeah, they're working on an extension for Trubisky. I think Omar Khan said it. It was like, I, I was almost going to tweet out why with a big question mark. And then I decided, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to leave it be <laughs> and just not pick on Mitch Trubisky. Uh, I don't get it at all. Um, all. All I can imagine is I, I don't think it's a hedge. I, I think they're happy with Trubisky. Um, they're probably happy with him in that backup position, maybe as an emergency in the event that uh, Pickett, um, you know, doesn't work out. Um, you know, so I, I think it's probably that. Um, you know, and again, maybe they, they look at it as like, well, we extend him. Maybe there's there's some value there in a trade down the line as well. Um, you know, so I, I think that's what it is. But yeah, I have no idea. I, I would have thought he'd be cut or something, you know. Um, you know, just move on. All right, Peter. Uh, Florio wrote a semi-monthly plea to get contracts tied to a percentage of the cap and tied to Burrow's extension. To your knowledge, is there anyone aside from Florio clamoring for this? I thought it would be a non-starter for any front office. I like PFT as a news aggregator. Uh, usually end up skipping over the soapbox sermons. Just curious if there's anything. No, there's nothing to it. Um, the tying to a salary cap is... Not something, uh, to my knowledge, that's really been done. Um, there have been players whose salaries have been tied to the franchise tag, which, in a sense, is tied to the um, uh, to the salary cap right now. So, I mean, you could look at it from that perspective, that you can earn an escalator uh, that brings it up to the level of a franchise tag. You can also look at it... Um, you know, from the perspective of a very different category, but it's where the contract value always had to be top five, you know, like a favored nations kind of clause, I guess what that would be, um, you know, always has to be top five at the position, you know, on a certain date, you measure the top five contracts by new money annual value. And, you know, there would be a, um, a bonus paid to bring a player's le uh, salary level up. That's not what he's talking about here. I don't even think that it would be meaningful to tie it to the raise in the rise in the cap because what increases faster the salary cap or top player contracts top player contracts so the salary levels for many of these guys is way above the franchise tag anyway you know or, or we're talking minuscule movement so it, again this becomes an argument where you're not really even thinking about it, you know, a lot of the times. Um, you know, what, what was the franchise tag this year for a quarterback? 
let's just look at the franchise tag. So even if we were going to project it on that, so your franchise tag this year was thirty-eight million. And you're spending this year. Oh, that's the wrong page. Let's go to quarterbacks. I'm just looking at cash spending overall. You know, so for example, Patrick Mahomes makes 40 million. So he he already makes more than the tag. So pegging him to the tag wouldn't make a lot of sense. Uh, Mahomes the prior year. Earned 31, 31.9. And uh, what was the salary cap last year? Two, 202? Um, I should know this off the top of my head. I never do. <laughs> COVID, the COVID year always threw, uh, threw me off. Um, I think last year it was two, maybe it was 208 too. Well, let's just say it was 208. So let's say this year it's 224 and 208. You'd be looking at a 7% increase. So uh, Mahomes, what did I say? He was at like $32 million. That'd be $35. That, that's less than his contracted salary, right? Let's, let's just see Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes. Now, maybe the one year where the cap really jumps, it would make a difference. But yeah, he's, he's over that. So even if you tied these salaries... You know, to the cap, you know, a player like that, it wouldn't change. You know, his his stated salary is larger than the increase in the cap. Now, maybe maybe there's a point in time, yeah, it would jump it a little bit, you know, because obviously next year the cap is going to increase, his salary goes down. Next year goes up a little, next year goes up a little. But the year that his salary jumps from 42 to 60, um, Unless something wacky happens, it's doubtful that his, um, you know, that the cap would rise by that kind of percentage level. So, you know, it's one of these things that sounds good on paper, but when you study the, the construction of a contract, not so much. And the other thing is, if you started tying the numbers to the salary cap, what do you think is going to happen when the teams negotiate these deals? Do you think Lamar Jackson is going to make $80 million in cash this year if his salary was tied, excuse me, to a percentage increase in the cap? Now, if Florio's argument that the contract value overall maybe should be, and maybe that's what it was, I didn't read it. Uh, I do read a lot of his stuff. Those things I kind of, um, you know, pass over. Um, but the, the right way to do it is if you're going to tie it to something, you tie it to the average of the top five or the top 10 players at a position. This way it continues to, um, you know, basically put you in a spot to where you're among the highest paid. Uh, I don't even know if that's happened. Um, there may have been some of these poison pill deals where they, they've kind of tried to throw in some clauses like that. You know, if he if he plays in another team or if he, you know, has five games in the, the state of Washington, um, you know, his, his salary must be top five guards or something like that. Yeah, who knows? Um, you know, but uh, <laughs> the, the the basics is that tying it to a percentage of the cap really isn't going to do anything. 
you know, if you if you want to tie it to something, you tie it to that. If you have really low paragraph five salaries in the back end of a deal, you can tie them maybe to a franchise tag, um, you know, at that point in time. But the key, the key really should be if you're not going to tie it to the, the annual value of those top those top players, don't sign a freaking 10 year contract. Sign a four year deal. You know, that, that's the way that you do it. Sign a three-year deal. Sign a four-year deal. Something that makes you get an extension. And by default is tying you to the increases in the market. Because there's not enough time that you're under contract to let the market really pass you by. Because you, you just come right back up for an extension. You know, that's Dak Prescott. You know, Dak Prescott's in a position to where... His contract was top of the market, close enough to the top of the market for two seasons. He's going to miss out one year um, where he's going to be, I know some people are going to say, well, no, he's not underpaid, but he might be a little bit under relative to market. Um, but by next year, he's basically going to be able to write his own check for another extension. He'll be right back up to top of market. That's the way to do it. Uh, not all this other nonsense. Uh, Kevin, I know in the past you mentioned um, uh, NFLPA should focus less on complaining about full guarantees instead of be pushing agents and players to sign three-year deals like Tunsil and also have franchise players force uh, trades to reset the market. Uh, what are some other contract trends you think the PA should be pushing agents to look into? So one of the things, and this isn't a trend, but what we talked about before, they should be pushing for the guys who are drafted to actually get some type of paragraph five salary guarantee to match them up with an undrafted, just just as a just a little protection level. Um, I think that would be a good thing. I think the biggest thing, and again, it's not a trend whatsoever. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things, and actually, no, I, I shouldn't say this because this would not be something for agents to, um, you know, look into. I, I think the one thing that they should be looking into is this concept of helping the team manage their salary cap. Um, what the agents have done to help the Philadelphia Eagles is in no way, shape, or form in the best interest of their clients. Um, maybe it's in the best interest of themselves. Maybe it's in the best interests of the um, their overall client base if they're negotiating with those teams. It's not in the best interest of their individual players to somehow be allowing the teams like the Eagles basically a get-out-of-jail-free card with these phony baloney, um, you know, June 1st releases. Like, that That should not be done whatsoever, um, you know, in no way, shape, or form. They should be going back and doing more and more studies um, of older contracts as to how much more those players earned relative to the contract size by you know, forcing teams into these structures that included a signing bonus and an option bonus. And we're seeing more of that now. So we might get more data in the present as to how those contracts work out. But I, I would I would be looking at that kind of stuff because the, the prorated money that leaves you with dead money on the cap is much more important than the money that you just kind of bury as dead money by having it paid as paragraph five salary on the front end of the deals. Um, cash is cash. Absolutely. You know, that's the case, but you should be doing things that try to maximize the total earnings potential. 
And sometimes the way to do that is to throw a bunch of sunk costs into a contract that might come back to bite you if they, they have to cut the player. Um, I think that that's a very important thing to look at. Uh, and I, I don't think they do. I, I don't think there's um, you know enough of a push on that. So I, I think those are like little areas that they, they should be looking at. Um, and the other thing, and this it's it's not fair to the quarterbacks, but it should be to push those quarterbacks into uh, you know pushing on the franchise tags. All right, let's take to Twitter. Then we'll call this one. I see Jacob is already back, so I know he's looking to play Fortnite. All right, so let's try to shoot through these. Brian. Is there an incentive for Matt Stafford to play in 24 besides his base salary? I don't know if an additional $31 million is enough to keep him around. I doubt the Rams will look to extend him again if he struggles with injuries in 23. Um, not really, you know. Um, so, no, I, I think the Rams will look to trade him next year. Um, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll look to see if they can find someone to take that contract and, uh, you know, do that. Williams contract, 120 for five with 72 guaranteed. Who says no? And is this possible from Jets' point of view? Um, I'm sure the Jets could do that deal. Uh, I think Williams should say no at 24 a year. That's 24 a year, right? 125? Yeah, 24 a year. Um, I, I think Williams should say no on a five. I would stick on a four, and I'd look for at least $25 million. Um, I think the Jets would be okay with that deal. Uh, Williams is an interesting character, interesting guy. I don't, you know, I, I say that he, he should be 25, 26. At the same point in time, I can understand why the Jets are a little cautious about it because you could be looking at a player who is a one-season wonder. You know, we, we had a couple of years where we battled consistency. He's still not a guy who's on the field 80, 85% of the time. You know, explodes last year. What happens next? Does he take it to that level to where now we're... We know he's in that consistency level of the um, Aaron Donald, Fletcher Cox, Chris Jones, you know, where year after year after year you're producing. Or is he going to be one of these guys that has that one big year and you're always just waiting for that other big year to happen again? Alex, you play fantasy football, and if so, what would your top 10 picks be? Keep trashing the Falcons offseason. What would you have done differently? Uh, so on the Falcons front... I just wouldn't have signed as many older players. I, I think I would have probably taken approach a little bit like the Bears. Um, now I know the Bears had more draft capital to work with, and you you know you bring in a younger guy with a trade. Um, I thought the Bears did a better job of kind of setting aside, um, you know, cap room. So for example, the Bears still have about thirty two million in cap space. They'll have about twenty eight after they sign all their picks. Um, the Falcons are only going to have about $6 million after they sign their picks. Now, the, those numbers are going to fluctuate up and down a little bit. But I, I thought the Bears... Now, the Bears had a, a bigger number to work with. But I thought the Bears did a better job of kind of saying, like, okay, we're, we're going in pretty heavy this year. But we're not going to go overboard. We're not going to go so heavy that, you know, we're not in a position the following year, you know, to where we're at the top of the league. And you look at where they are next year... You know, they're still going to be top three, top five, top seven in salary cap space. The Falcons are going to be middle of the pack. Um, so I, I feel like the Falcons have kind of bought into what is a older football team with a very unproven quarterback. So I think I would have approached free agency different in terms of volume and in terms of type of player um, that I was probably going after. 
I can't say on the quarterbacks, you know, with the draft and everything else. That that's more of a longer term thing, you know. The 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 you know the running back in the draft. I can't say there's a quarterback they should have taken, um, but there's other positions they probably should have taken. Uh, fantasy football, just uh, DFS at this point. Um, I do have one league that I I still play in that I've been in for like a billion years. Dynasty league, um, you know, the great to play to win the game. So I, I can't say who my top ten would be. I just do the DFS, but I don't even um, I don't have the time to even put in as much with that. Uh, so I think this year, again, I, I I just play. I find it more fun to play the bigger pools, even though they're very hard to win in. Uh, I did have one decent one this year. Um, that was yeah, fifteen hundred dollar win, something like that. Um, there was one of those. The biggest one that I hit was one of those four p.m. ones. I think I won a, a GPP that was like a maybe a eight thousand dollar payout or something like that. That was probably the best one that I did. Um, you know, and obviously many losses along the way. Um, you know, but that that's kind of what I find fun to do. Uh, but I find it more fun going week to week now. And doing those, but I, I used to really like kind of projecting the stats, and um, you know, I just don't do that as much anymore. John, uh, there are rumors that the Vikings are making cap room for Quinn and Williams. What kind of cap room do they need? And would losing Dalvin Cook be enough? I have no idea. I have no idea why they would do that. I don't know why the Jets would do that. Um, yeah, you you can make those numbers happen. Yeah, I don't know why Dalvin Cook is still there. I have no clue. Um, but yeah. I'm sure they could bring them in. Uh, the NFL is licensed like the WWF for entertainment purposes, which means they can do whatever they want to make games more entertaining. Some things they can control, some things they can't. What do you think? Um, I'm always, <laughs> I'm always not certain that sports is always on the up and up. That comes more at the NBA level uh, than I, I think in. Um, the NFL, I think with the NFL is you see more schedule manipulation and, you know, playoff schedule manipulation. Really, I, I think that's more what it is. It's about featuring certain teams at four o'clock, featuring certain teams at eight o'clock, featuring certain teams in the playoffs, um, more so than, you know, fixing games. I, I, I don't think you you have the fixes in kind of situations in the um in the NFL. But, um, you know, I, I think that's one of the things. I think you see it with some of these silly rules that they're proposing with the, the flex schedule on Thursdays that they want to have. And, um, you know, I think they, they have a rule. What, what do they want? All fair catches, no matter where they're made, coming out to the 25. I mean, that that's done solely for the purpose of scoring. I, I would hate that rule. Um, I don't like punting, but, you know, I would hate that rule. Uh, you know, if there, if that rule is applying to punts, and I don't know if it is. I didn't even bother really reading on it. I just saw some headlines on it. Um, but I, I don't think they're they're in the process of like uh, fixing games to make certain a team you know makes it. Steve and the Bengals and Chargers are organizations known for not spending a lot of money. How do you think the Burrow and Herbert extensions are structured? Will they be cash heavy at the front end, or will there be a lot of prorated money in void years? Um, so. Burroughs would definitely be like Lamar Jackson's with the, the money on the front end because that, that's how the Bengals do their deals. Uh, San Diego, uh, Los Angeles, uh, probably not as much. And they're certainly not going to do void years. I, I don't see the the Chargers doing the void year thing. I don't think they've done that with anybody. They didn't even do that with the guys they um, uh, restructured this year. So I, I don't see them doing that to push out money. I don't think 
the Bengals will do that. I'm not even sure if the Bengals have any void years. I'd have to look to see if they've, they've done that. Um, you know, I, I think that's kind of just how they would do. You know, I, I think the, um, you know, I, I guess you go back to those Rivers deals, maybe if you're looking for something comparable with the Chargers. I, I would think the Bengals, you know, I would think the Bengals are just looking for like a big long-term deal. Um, you know, they're, uh, you know, I, I would imagine, you know, the, the Herbert deal, I would think it's just going to be a very standard structure. You know, whatever they offer, um, you know, signing bonus that's, you know, decent, but not gigantic. Um, you know, maybe some roster bonuses in the back end, and then they'll restructure as needed throughout the contract. Um, I, I don't think that they, they'll do anything like too wild, too exotic, too crazy. I think it's more just coming up with the money. Uh, Punish Joe, why does every media outlet talk about how the Bengals can't afford borrow Chase and Higgins, but no one talks about the Dolphins or Eagles? Seems to me the situations are almost exactly the same, if not more, in the Bengals' favor. Um, so I think there's a couple of things. Number one, the, the Bengals are not going to be creative like the Eagles when it comes to salary cap. Uh, the second thing and the bigger thing is that as the Bengals are in no way, shape, or form anywhere near um, the level of budget that the Miami uh, that the Philadelphia Eagles have. Like they're they're, they're in a different stratosphere. Um, you know, it, it would be like the the Eagles would be like at the top of the Forbes list, and you know the the Bengals would be. You know, somewhere is like an honorable mention. Like the, the budgets are really that different between the teams. Um, Miami is a little bit similar. Miami will push the salary cap stuff much more. Miami probably does have a little bit more of a budget that they can work with than Cincinnati. Um, the other thing, too, is where, where you look at the Eagles and you look at Miami, there is much more of a staggered situation there, right? So we have A.J. Brown now. By the time A.J. Brown's money really picks up, you know, from a salary cap perspective, he's probably going to be cut. Hurts' numbers will still be low. You know, if they extend someone like Smith, his numbers would be low at that point in time. Um, Miami, you know, Hill will be phasing out when, man, I don't I, I don't want to say Tua, but uh, let's just say Tua. When Tua phases in, Hill will be phasing out. In Cincinnati, you basically have everybody coming up at the same time. So it it's like you can't stack them. It's like really they're they're all running concurrently. So it, it's a very it's a very different situation. Now I'm not saying that when the media outlets are talking about it, you know, but and I'm assuming when you, you say media, you're talking about like ESPN. I'm sure they're just looking at that and saying, well, you can't pay Burrow 45 or 55. You can't pay Chase 28. You can't pay Higgins 20 uh, or Chase 25 and Higgins 20. You just, no team is built like that. And you, you can you can make those generalizations and those arguments um, that, yeah, you, you don't see teams doing that kind of stuff. But um, I think that's just a, a very big generalization. I, I think from the more team perspective of it, you know, you get into the weeds of it and you discuss it. I think really what we're looking at there is just a concept of you've got three contracts running one against another and you're not stacking them. It's not like, okay, I've got the $25 million receiver who's really a 23 because we're baking some old money into it. 
his contract started last year. I don't really have to worry about Hertz's deal technically from a cap standpoint starting two years from now or Miami. Um, you know, I've got, you know, whatever, whatever numbers on Hill, um, you know, I don't have to worry about that, um, you know, a little bit to the future. Jacob is getting a little Fortnite angry with me right now. Um, <laughs> you know, but it, it, it just, it kind of boils down to that. that there's a, a little bit more stacking, um, you know, that can be done elsewhere that can't be done with Cincinnati. With running backs getting less money on a second contract, future younger athletes would like to play other positions and result in less talented running backs in the future. No, I don't think so. Um, you know, it's a it's a big deal in high school. It's a big deal in college. If it's your best path into the NFL, let it be your best path into the NFL. Like if I can be a great running back or a okay, I don't know, safety, you know, be a running back. You know, because you've got a better chance of earning that rookie contract and getting drafted higher if you're that great running back and, you know, getting something on a second contract versus having to deal with the whole safety market. Yeah, if you are that great at that position or is a linebacker or something like that, maybe you can make a little more. But if you're a great running back, be a great running back. Just know that your career is unfortunately going to be shorter at that position. Um but I think it's so important to the success of a high school team and important to the success of a college team um, that you will always still go to that position. And now that there's more money in college, I, I think you would uh, do that. Uh, 49ers, uh, how do you estimate a new contract for remaining top tier free agents? Edge rushers will look like uh, the Clowney, Gakwe. I don't know, you know, a couple million bucks a year. Um, you know, there's just not much that uh, that comes from it. I, I think the teams that have paid Clowney $10 million at the deadline have always overpaid, and I think it's at the point where teams know that now, so he's not going to get that this time around. Jason, did Joe Douglas drag out the Quinton Williams contract and will he end up paying more because of that? Did he mishandle it? How much do you think Quinton gets? I, I, I won't say, you know, he mishandled it. This is just an issue with the Jets. The Jets always play these things too slow. Um, Jets haven't done a big extension. Maybe they didn't think things things out and you know take the lay of the land and say well you know the market's probably going to increase by x amount of dollars you want to be the first not the last so yeah they, they mishandled it in that regard um but i don't think it's at the point even though yes he's taken the jets out of his bio on twitter or instagram or whatever who cares um you know that's that's silliness uh my guess is he'll get 25 or 26 a year but yeah the jets cost themselves a couple of million probably by just not getting this deal done and more so than that even if they ended up paying the same amount Either way, um, you know, it just looks bad for them with the time that they wasted here. Uh, looking at Shaq Griffin's contract with the Texans, there's $1.2 million of void year money on a tiny total contract. What exactly is the point of it? Are teams just doing them to do them? So, yeah, there's a couple of teams that are just doing them to do them. But I think in the, the Texans case, um, you know, I think where they No, they're... they're uh, no, 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 no. They're doing it because of their salary cap. You know, that once they get all their rookies in there... They're not going to have a lot of room, so they, they kind of have to do it uh, because of that. Paul, does Jamal Adams have an injury guarantee cap hit if he was cut post-June 1? Um, I think Jamal Adams' salary, I, I think his salary guarantee is guaranteed for the year, right? Um, Jamal Adams, let's see. Uh, 
Okay, no, Jamal Adams has a small injury guarantee. This is an example of a sunk cost, but if they cut him post-June 1, he'd have 9-7 dead this year, and you would have $14 million to deal with on the cap next year. Just a... That whole situation ended up terrible for Seattle. Samuel, are there any salary cap strategies that you think are over or underutilized? Um, I think for certain teams, void years are overutilized. I think for other teams, they're probably underutilized. Uh, I think there's too many teams still that get a little too caught up on the um, not using the signing bonuses enough. I think that's one of the things. But I, I think, um, you know, when you get into the weeds on it, I think what you want to do is study Philadelphia, study Cleveland, see some of the more creative things those teams are doing. And that's really what you should be following. I think the other thing is teams should be more active in trading for players. There is a, a large contract benefit a lot of times that comes with trading for a player, signing him to an extension, um, especially if you can kind of get him for pennies on the dollar in terms of draft player compensation. Um so I think that's uh, one of the things. Uh, how will the Jets manage the contracts they need to com uh, to complete Rodgers, Quinn Williams, and possibly any other addition? Um, you know, they'll have to restructure a couple guys. They did Carl Lawson this week. He took a pay cut. Um, I don't have the full details on it. Um, you know, that is what it is. Um, you know, they'll, they'll be able to fit their guys in. The, the Jets are probably just not going to be able to do these big free agent runs they didn't do it this year. Probably won't be able to do it next year. Um, we'll see. How big Q's extension work with the cap hit Rodgers has going into next year is there a way for the Jets to be able to restructure Rodgers to the point they can extend Quinnen and not bury themselves down the road? Sure. Uh, Rodgers right now has a cap hit next year of like $107 million. Not going to happen. Um, they'll pay him a bonus this year. That's going to get spread out over four or five years. So don't, don't worry about it from that regard. Um, you know, if the Jets make this that they can't keep Quinn and Williams because of Aaron Rodgers. It's going to be a very big negative for them in a year where they should have absolutely no negatives going into the season. So it's a deal that they should get done. Um, you know, unless they were blown away by an offer for Quinn and Williams, they, they absolutely should be extending him. Flip, think it's a waste for teams to spend 200000 on guaranteed contracts for UDFAs. Do you think uh, Mickey Loomis is a genius or reckless? Is a genius or reckless with how he treated the cap? Long ago, you think the contract to Central Alex Highsmith is still like $23 million, uh, like Crosby. Um, so talked about the guarantees on those players. Uh, Loomis, I think, is reckless with the, the cap. But, you know, you, you can't, you know, people take that as like, you know, you're being overly critical. He's had a great career in the NFL, right? I just think that they, they've, there's certain things that have passed them by and you just don't, they don't want to be realistic with certain aspects of their team. Uh, I would think that, yeah, it's still Crosby range on that contract. The only thing is, now that defensive tackle salaries have gone up, I think as an edge rusher, you should be looking for more. You know, and this is one of the things people asked, uh, somebody asked before, um, I don't remember who it was, you know, about salary cap trends, um, you know, that or different types of trends that uh, the NFLPA should be talking about with the uh, agents. One of those things is pegging positions. Like, I don't need to work just within the edge rusher market if I'm an edge rusher. I want to benchmark where edge rushers were versus defensive tackles five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, four years ago. Because if the defensive tackle market is growing, it means we should have a similar shift, I think, in the 
edge rusher market because in some way, shape, or form, they should be pegged together, right? If our left tackle salaries are increasing, our pass rusher salaries should be increasing. I want to look at that. You know, you, you want to look at the correlation that really should exist between certain positions. And if we're seeing growth at another position, we want to make a case when we're negotiating for a different position why we're saying our market should increase. I don't want to just peg myself to Max Crosby because, well, that's the market is what it is. That's good enough. I want to peg it now to saying, okay, that was the market then. But man, look where Simmons is at. Look where Quinnen Williams is at. Look where Dexter Lawrence is at. Like these guys are at that level or higher. Edge rushers have always been valued more than defensive tackles. So Crosby's 23 should be, if, if Quinnen Williams comes in at the top, should be Quinnen Williams plus three. Crosby's at 23, right? I'm just going with that number. <laughs> um you know, or is he at 26? I think he's at 23. I know he took a, well, didn't, I'm not saying he took a lower deal. Just that that's one of those draft status things right there. Yeah, 23.5. Um, you know, th that's the kind of stuff I'm looking at. Like, you know, he was 23.5, you know, fifth highest paid pass rusher. But at the time, you know, there were no defensive tackles earning more than him or the same as him. So I would look at that and be like, well, you know, if our defensive tackles right now, Jeffrey Simmons is up to 23-5. He's, he's the same as Crosby. Well, at a minimum, that puts my guy, if you're saying a comp is Crosby, at a minimum, I'm at 25 million on that because that's how much the market has increased. Those are little things. Like you, you should be benchmarking across different positions where you can find different kind of correlations maybe that exist, um, you know, within the overall market. All right, a couple more, then Jacob can play Fortnite. Long-term thinking at the tight end position. Are we on a uh, crash course for more contract extension issues with the crop of tight ends that we use at wide receivers? Buffalo, I'm looking at you. Um, I don't know where we're really at with that right now. I, I think that the, the tight end is one of those positions where people fall in love with the potential um, because of the athleticism. But when you put your offense together, you're not really putting your offense together in any way, shape, or form that's really going to utilize that guy as a wide receiver. Even if you're utilizing him at times as a wide receiver, it's going to be rare to come up with a situation that's like a Jimmy Graham type of player, Jimmy Graham type of situation, where he really is playing as a wide receiver in large part because you don't have other wide receivers on your team. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what's really going to happen with that. Um, I, I, I think I think because of the Graham one being lost and other players really not having any legs to stand on after that, yeah, it, 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 it's probably a situation where you'll get more complaining and nothing will come from it. But in large part, it's because the, the overall results for those players – is not the same as a wide receiver. It's like when we talk about running backs and some of these running backs, like, well, you can look at them being used as a wide receiver. You know, you know the show Robinson in the rookie camp being used as a wide receiver in Atlanta. And, you know, someone will put the googly eyes up there and Twitter and it's like, wow, look at that fire. And it's like, there is a complete difference between one of these guys, even when he's lining out wide versus an actual receiver playing receiver. It, it just is.
Uh, Nicholas, if the Chiefs rework the Mahomes deal, what kind of dead cap, if any, do the Chiefs incur? Nothing. When you rework a contract, unless you're shaving years off that uh, causes money to accelerate, um, you, you're just building on top of the existing contract. So if the Chiefs really are redoing Mahomes' deal, which I, I can't see the logic in it, but whatever. Um, you know, he could throw some money at the end of the deal and switch some money around, I guess, if that makes him more happy. Um you know, really, uh, all you're doing is just shifting charges. And you'd probably take Mahomes' deal, you know, which has got so many years on it, probably just revalue it as an entirely new contract, the same way we looked at Aaron Rodgers when he did his recent three-year deal with Green Bay. Um, you know, even though he had one existing year, it was very clear they were negotiating that as a brand new three-year contract, so we didn't take into account old money. Um you know, so that that's just, it'll be the same way with Mahomes. How close are the Browns to becoming the Saints, Rams, or previous Falcons? Uh, <laughs> I've said it, that the Browns are, they're getting into a danger zone. But I think the thing is that the Browns, um, assuming the quarterback can become a quarterback again, um I think the Browns front office is much more um, related to the Eagles front office. So you're, you're going to see more creativity with the cap. And I don't think it's like the Rams where you, you have too many guys getting contracts that shouldn't. Like the, the Rams just, you know, it was more like you've got this feeling of euphoria. So you let Cooper Cup and you let Aaron Donald take advantage of you. Um you know, you had this feeling like, well, I need to take care of my guys. And you do a deal you never should have done for Todd Gurley. You do a deal you never should have done for Robert Woods. You know, it, it's like you kind of get into those problems. I don't think the Browns have that problem. Um, you know, and the, I can't say the Browns roster is like the Saints to where, you know, it's all minimum salary guys, uh, minimum P5 guys, I should say, with restructures. And, you know, they're older. You know, it, it's still, you know, players, I, I would say, on a team in, in theory that's in a prime and maybe even ascending versus the Saints, which clearly are a team descending. So I, I don't think that the, the Browns are at that point yet. But yeah, I, I think if the Browns aren't careful, yeah, they, they could end up in that kind of position. What's a good resolution for the Jets and Rodgers with the cap hit being 1 million and then 100? What's a smart play? So obviously this is just a placeholder contract that they needed to get that trade done and just get it in there. I don't know. I I, I don't know what Rodgers wants to do. I, I don't know what the, uh, the, the, the process is here. I don't know if Rodgers wants to commit two years. I don't know if he wants to commit three years. I don't know if he wants to commit four. And by committing, I just mean that he's willing to sign a contract for that many years. Um, you know, if I were the Jets, I would probably structure his contract in a way the Eagles do with everything, or even the way the Packers did his last deals where you've got these option bonuses that have the option bonuses due in like August or September time frame. Um, you know, you can have some funny money years in there if he's giving you a date by which he is going to retire, in which case you can, um, you know, kind of hold off on putting him on a retirement list and keep his cap hit down. You know, I think there's different ways you can, you can do that. Um, you know, to spread that money out. I would probably do this in a way to where his cap hits in each year are going to be right around like 30 million bucks. Um, you know, I wouldn't do it like the way that it was going to be, which was going to be a cap hit, I think, of 15 this year. And I know the Jets right now are pinched on cap space, but they do have a lot of flexibility with their roster. 
um, you know, with in regards to still being able to restructure a couple of players and do some things there. Um, so I'd look at that. But, um, you know, somebody told me this uh, pretty high level NFL person. And it's just like, you know, when you get a thing like this, just be happy with it and uh, let the business stuff sort itself out. And I, I think um, there's a time and a place to probably be really kind of evaluating the Rodgers situation. But as a fan of the team, I just want to see him play football this year for them and hopefully be successful. All right, last question. Uh, what ended up changing in the fifth-year option, what you originally had for Dexter Lawrence at 12-4 that dropped it to 10 and change? Would you please maybe run through some sample calculations on fifth-year options Should video to show how that worked out? Uh, yeah, I'll try to put a video together on that if I get a chance. Um, so basically, I screwed up. Uh, we had the number originally at 10.7. The, the interior defensive line position is, it's a weird spot, right? Because it encompasses certain players who are defensive ends. It encompasses certain players who are defensive tackles. The way the league separates them is still a question mark to me. So basically, um, we had him at the defensive tackle number we were told he was being valued at the defensive end number, which is the higher of the two. Uh, as it turns out, that was not the case. So we were we were given bad information on that one. And I don't think it was really bad information because other people told me that the NFL Players Association had it in there. My assumption, because I've seen this happen with other players that have, that have gone through these positional battles, whether it's a Sheldon Richardson, um, you know, linebacker edge, you know, type of players, you know, like Clowney. Um, what's happened is, and maybe even, a, yeah, no, linebacker, Bradley Chubb, I think, went through this. Sometimes what will happen is the the um, Players Association will kind of use the higher number, um, basically just saying, hey, you should be challenging this. Like, this is what we view this number as, challenge it. And you can do that. You know, you can file a grievance. Like, Richardson won his grievance for getting the higher salary. That one I know. Um, Sheldon Richardson with Seattle, I think he was on at the time. Um, you know, you, you you can file these grievances and, you know, you, you might be able to get more, um, you know, if you can push forward that you are playing at the other position. So I think that's probably why they had that salary there and the person that gave me that information was probably based on that. Uh, once he's negotiating an extension with the Giants, obviously they're agreeing on a number. And that number was probably 10-7. So when... People started looking up the number who are within the league. They basically said, hey, listen, uh, he's not making whatever number you have on there. His salary is this. And when the numbers came out, you could see that his extension was based on that 10.76, I think is what it was, number. Um, so that's what it was. So it, it was just a spot where we blew it. Um, and, and I can't even say it was bad information. It was just a different sourced information that had a different interpretation um, I think of it. So we should have gone with our own, <laughs> our own number on it. But I, I can try in the off season um, to put together some videos. Um, I know a couple of people have asked me about like crunching numbers and that kind of stuff too. Uh, I get a lot of requests to put together class kind of stuff. So maybe I'll try to do that at some point. We'll actually put together like a little salary cap contract class um, that we'll do. And you know, but something like this, I could try to put a short video up and uh, do that. All right, so that'll do it for me. I'm sure my son is really getting anxious to jump on Fortnite here. So um, 
I will call this one a uh, call this one a day here. So hopefully I'll be back next week. Um, this is really the dead season of the NFL. So if we're doing talks about stuff, um, we'll get more into like maybe not the UDFA topic again, but topics probably like that where we we'll start looking just at just generalized trends and uh, maybe some extension players who are coming up and everything else. But th- this is like the dead time of year, um, really for the next other than right around the franchise tag deadline, really for the next like two and a half months. Um, so if you have any ideas for topics, send them over. Same thing if you have ideas for beers, got a couple suggestions, but they weren't stuff that was, uh, that I was able to find. Um, just send them over and we'll do that. And I'll try to get some videos snuck in there, uh, as well and some different topics. So, uh, you guys have a great week and I'll talk to you all again soon.